0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ronnie D'Souza, who is an emeritus professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, also the author of a number of books. I think the most recent published one is this little short book, short introduction called Love. Another book called Why Think? Evolution and the Rational Mind. Also this one, The Rationality of Emotion. And your next book, which is going to come out soon, is called Why It's Okay to Be a Moral. Welcome, Ronnie.
1: Thank you. It's very nice to be here. There's one more book, which is called Emotional Truth, and which is very expensive. And indeed, after 10 years, I still owe them some of my advance, but I actually rather like it because it is a kind of glorified collection of essays in which I talk about all kinds of things, which was the whole point of my doing philosophy of emotions in the first place, because I regard philosophy as a license to be a dilettante And so essentially I like poaching and talking about other people's topics, which I think is something that you and I share. Well, I think the podcast is my license to be a diligent as well. I'll have to go buy
0: that book and contribute to reduce your debt to the publisher. Oh, please (laughs) do. I think Uh, I'll still
1: owe them 200 (laughs) pounds.
0: So I want to start off, your work is very interdisciplinary. I mean, you talk a lot about biology. There's reference to obliquely to artificial intelligence. There's moral philosophy. There's pretty much every other branch of philosophy. You even make reference to economics. It's really quite impressive. And in the book, Why Think?, you make a point which... It's a point I think I've been making implicitly, but I never really made it explicitly. And this is... You're taking Aristotle on. Aristotle said that what makes man unique is his rationality. And you turn it on its head and you say, well, in fact... What really makes man unique is his capacity for irrationality, because we never ever say about an animal that they are irrational. I used to go to animal behavior conferences all the time, and I didn't quite belong because my animal was humans, and that's you're not supposed to go there. But you'd never talk about when the moth flies into the flame, you'd never say, well, that was a stupid moth. (laughs) Or when the bird flies into the glass pane, you never say, well, that was a really stupid bird. But we... As philosophers, economists, we're always talking about how stupid people are and how irrational people are. And so that's our unique feature. Is that something we should be bragging about? I thought what made us unique was supposed to make us better. Absolutely. We should be
1: bragging about it. (laughs) There's a passage at the beginning of Hobbes' Leviathan where he muses about the question of why it is that ants another species that is a social species, just as we are, but a bit different from us, why they don't have as much trouble as we have living in a society and doing what we need to do. And I find his answer absolutely fascinating. His answer is, because they don't talk. Now, because they don't talk, they don't quarrel they don't debate, they cannot be injured, by which he means insulted. They can be injured in our sense, but he uses the word in the sense of insulted. So, they cannot be affronted. And above all, they never try to innovate. And all of these things are made possible by language. So, I want to say that this is indeed our glory as well as the source of our failures. Because to be able to talk is also the only way in which you can be convicted of being inconsistent. When your cat seems to be saying, I want to go out, and immediately then wants to go in again, then immediately wants to go out again, one is tempted to say, well, how annoying, how inconsistent, what is going on here? How irrational. But of course, it's not inconsistent or irrational to change your mind or to change your mood. You can only be inconsistent if you actually maintain at the same time things that cannot be true together. But only somebody who talks can be convicted of inconsistency because only if you talk can you put things sufficiently precisely for anyone to be able to say, but that contradicts this other thing. And so that's why I think that it's absolutely true to say that the right way to understand Aristotle saying we are rational animals. is not that in the good sense of rationality that contrasts with irrationality, it's in the purely categorical sense of rationality that contrasts with a rationality. So a stone is neither rational nor irrational. An ant is neither rational nor irrational. And I believe that this is the core, and this is actually one of the things I'm most interested in, and it covers a great many of the things that I've tried to think about. It's the way in which language changes everything. The way in which even our emotions, the nature of our relationships, all of these things are dominated profoundly modified by what we've learned to say about them and what other people say about them. And so I think that's an enormously important point about rationality that does often escape people because they tend to think that the only options are, well, you're either rational or irrational.
0: Well, of course, we're using this word reason in multiple ways, right? We do a little bit of bait and switch sometimes when we use this word. And so in some senses, it does make sense to talk about the rationality of animals, right? And their goal pursuit, right? And you even go so far as to say Absolutely. That the, the paramecium that is pursuing some sugar gradient. In that sense, there's a reason behind the behavior of this animal. I think one of the most provocative quotes that I saw in the book, why well, I think was that economics as a discipline really only makes sense when you're talking about animals in the sense that their objective function is so transparent, right? I mean, it's not immediately transparent, but, you know, you actually have a way of evaluating, right, what they're doing in terms of the end goal, right? Whereas with humans, it's a little bit more complicated. I think it was meant to be provocative, but actually, you know, I, I remember one time I went and taught evolutionary biology, and all I did was just take my economics training and just cross out a bunch of words and put in a couple other words, and cross out John Nash, put in John Maynard Smith, and I was off to the races.
1: That's right. No, of course. I mean, uh, economic is the perfect, uh, if you like, theoretical framework for biology. But that's not to say that it's always easy to get at, right? Because we're talking here about teleology, and there's a difference between teleology and rationality. Roughly speaking, it seems to me that, of course, the teleology... It's just something that has to do with the adaptation of a strategy to a goal. And of course, in the context of evolutionary psychology, the goal is essentially just the trivial goal of propagating DNA. But rationality has to do with how we conceptualize the relationship between goal and means. And once again, with language, how we can debate about that, how we can consider different strategies, how we can invent new strategies, innovate, the very thing that one of the things that Hobbes mentions in that passage. And of course, innovation has the further fascinating property that almost all the important things that result from innovations are those that were unintended, I mean, we can think, for example, of agriculture, right? The invention of agriculture. It's just a brilliant and simple idea. If we just put these seeds in the ground and just look after them a bit, we won't have to move around and keep finding our stuff in plants and in trees, which then will get exhausted and so on. So who could have predicted when somebody thought of putting seeds into the grounds that this would ultimately result in, as many people believe, empires misogyny, male supremacy, racism, all of these things which result from the possibility of accumulation and, therefore, of inequality that is generated by the mere fact that you would decide to stay in one place and cultivate some fields. I mean, that's just as an example of the law of unintended consequences. Good.
0: I mean, I think you're making the case though, that kind of evolution at the human level is in some ways different, right, than evolution. I mean, there are cultural evolutionists who would argue that pretty much everything that happens in culture is Darwinian in the sense that they you know, have these random mutations and the mutations survive. But I think you're making the case that no, the transition that led to language enabled a different type of evolution. And I think the metaphor that you use, by the way, Thank you so much for that German word, the fake peak word that was the word. Ah, oh,
1: Falschpitzfindigkeit. This is due to the logician, Pryor, who, I forget his first name, but he was sort of uh, first half of the 20th century. He wrote this beautiful article that was a parody or a way of criticizing the purely notational view of logic that some people had put forward. A lot of people at the beginning of the 20th century, the logical positivists said, oh, look, logic is just a bunch of rules which are completely arbitrary, and you just invent some rules about when you're allowed to write down P, when you're allowed to write down Q, when you're allowed to write down therefore, etc. So he proposed a new connective, which would have both the virtues of AND and the virtues of OR. So, the rule for OR is if you have P or Q, that means that you could have P or you could have Q or you could have both. But if you have Q and P, then you got to have both and not just one. So, he said, well, why don't we just have TONK, which will play by the following two rules. One is if you have P-tonk-Q, you can always derive P, and you can always derive Q. And the other is if you just have P, you can always derive P-tonk-Q. And this way, from any proposition, you could get to any other proposition. Thus, he says, (laughs) dismissing the fear of falsch Spitzfindigkeit forever.
0: That's where it comes from. But I think the idea that you're incorporating that into your argument was that biological evolution is necessarily going to take you to this local maxima, but that humans have this this capacity to engage in, they can use their consciousness to see where those other peaks are and then intentionally take themselves, right, beyond that local maximum in ways that Darwinian evolution does not make possible, right? I mean, I think that was the point of... You know, you've got to
1: leap over... The fitness valleys, right? So if you have, you're going on a yeah. track like this, there's this is fitness landscape, and you might be at the local maximum, but there's no way of getting to a, that higher peak unless you first go down. And of course, this, one of the important uh, crucial roles of chance in evolution is that just mere drift is what is going to carry you through some of these fitness valleys, You might be less fit, but once you're down there, you might have access to another one. That's true. So another point I think you were making, you're talking about computation,
0: and we think of computation as something that humans do, right? We have the ability to do math and so forth. But I think you're arguing that, well, computation can be
1: a process that is not conscious, right? Computation was, happens all around us. It happens of all around course. us in, in nature. Of course. And, in, and inside us, right? I mean, I think fundamentally, we're all Bayesians. And fundamentally, animals are Bayesians. And there's a fascinating experiment by a couple of people, whose name, unfortunately, I can't recall, but I could find it, who show that when, for example, you're trying to return a ball with a racket... Let's say you're playing tennis or more squash or something, right? The Bayesian situation is that you have a certain prior expectation as to where that ball will be, and then you adjust that prior expectation on the basis of the information provided by your senses at this very moment. So, the fascinating experiment is, is that what they did was they adjusted the lighting conditions in such a way as to be able to compare how the brain does this, performs this, in other words, exactly what algorithm it follows when there's excellent lighting conditions and how it changes when the lighting conditions are very poor. And what they found was just exactly what the Bayesian formula would suggest. When the light gets poorer, you should wait the Prior more than the information coming in. But when the light is excellent, then you should raise the weight of the information that is input at this very moment. And they found that this is exactly what happened. Don't ask me for the details of the neuroscience involved, but they claim to have found just exactly that. So, of course, that involves computation. For that matter, every time you see a color, it involves computation of the extent to which one type of cone is being stimulated by that particular wavelength and how much the other, say, so second cone is stimulated. And then it takes that computation. And my understanding is that it then calculates the ratio of that to the third cones. Most of us have just three cones where we are trichromats, not tetrachromats, except for a few women whose sons are usually colorblind. <laughs> An amusing yeah, so, yeah so, so
0: computation, of course, we all engage in it. And in many ways, our emotions are sort of responses to, to the environment that are based in part on our interpretation of the environment, right? And we're making calculations and, and computations about the world to try and figure out how we should understand and respond to the world. And, you know, you wrote this book on the rationality of emotions. And I think a lot of people seem to think of rationality and emotions as opposites, right? As substitutes. And even in the tradition of kind of judgment and decision-making, right? The kind of behavioral economics, right? We tend to contrast our system one, system two, our rational and our irrational sides. And, And of course, you're kind of trying to explode that dichotomy. Could you talk a bit about how you see the rationality of emotions and ultimately how you mentioned that humans What we have is the capacity to integrate all of these different modules in our thinking. And in many ways, each emotion is itself a module, is it not? And so we're ultimately trying to manage this portfolio of emotions to come up with some coherent understanding of the world. So if each emotion has its own rationality, is there a meta-rationality that humans have that enable us to integrate? these different emotions to integrate these different modules. The analogy that you were using, it reminded me of Hume, right? Hume talks about kind of us as with a bundle of impulses and a bundle of interpretations. And what makes life difficult is the process of trying to manage these bundles.
1: Yes. I think that's basically right. When I wrote the book I had two ways of thinking about it the rationality of emotions. One is What are the contributions that emotions make to a rational life? And the other is, to what extent can we evaluate emotions themselves as being more or less rational? So, the background conception I have of rationality is actually incredibly simple. You probably, as an economist, think it just outrageously simplistic. But rationality is simply, in any given domain, is relative to a goal. What are the most efficient ways of arriving at that goal, of achieving that goal? So, if you want to know what rationality of belief is, well, the methods of science have been found to be the most rational because they are the most likely... Though far from infallible, to lead to the truth. And they're the most likely to lead to the truth precisely because they rely on your awareness that you are very much fallible. And so the rational thing to do to arrive at the truth is to constantly try to falsify whatever you think in order to eliminate things that couldn't be truths because they're inconsistent. Now, when you get to the rationality, say, of desire, what is the rationality of desire? Well, the point of desire is goodness in some very general sense of goodness, right? Anything, if you want something, the trivial answer to the question, why do you want it is because it's good in the same way that the trivial answer to the question, why do you believe something is because it's true. These are called the formal objects of intentional states because they're very useful in various ways. They identify the attitude in question. So, for example, the formal object of belief is truth. The formal object of fear is the dangerous. The formal object of surprise is the unexpected. You know, that kind of thing. These are always the obvious answers. But, of course, they're also, for that very reason, Completely uninformative. So, in order to make them informative, you've got to look at the particular domain you're interested in. And in the case of emotions, I think the best theory about the core of emotions that is now not perhaps universally, but I think fairly widely accepted among emotion theorists is that emotions condition your body to prepare it for a certain kind of response. So it's this notion of action readiness from which the other features of emotions can be understood. Why do you need to, for example, appraisal? One well-known dominant theory among many psychologists has been so-called appraisal theory. And so there's been lots of debates about whether you first appraise the situation and hence are caused to have a certain emotion, or whether the emotion just is that collection of appraisals. In particular, the vast school of emotion science in Geneva, CESA, I forget what it stands for, but basically it's a center for interdisciplinary studies of emotions. They have made a lot of this idea of appraisals. But if you think about it, the point of emotion, It's to get you ready to respond to a complex situation. So it's very different from a reflex. If you think about a reflex, you're at the doctor's and he pokes your knee in the right place and your leg just goes like that. When it's not something you don't have any goal in doing it, it is just a cause and effect. But What your emotions do, is they prepare you for action not in the sense that your muscles are conditioned to move in a certain direction, but in the sense that you now are prepared to pursue a certain goal. And that goal might be very different in two cases of fear. For example, you know, in Florida, I see a lot of alligators. You're always wondering, if if I come close enough, is the alligator going to try and get me? So you're afraid in that very primitive sense, but what you want to do is avoid it. That's the action that the fear prepares you for. Now, take a very, very complex, highly conceptually sophisticated kind of fear, like the fear that a certain stock will drop, which you're thinking of buying, right? Now, you've got to know so many things, You've got to believe so many things. You've got to understand so many things. So it's hugely complicated. Nevertheless, in this abstract way, what your fear does is condition you to try and avoid the crash, which is, in a sense, although it's more abstract, it's exactly the same goal. That's why, in both cases, we talk of fear, even though the situations are so completely different. So, you see, from that point of view, the rationality of an emotion depends on the type of situation which this emotion is supposed to prepare you to respond to. And I think that's a very general way in which we can understand the answer to both the questions that I formulated. The question about what's the inherent rationality of emotion, well, if it is appropriate to the situation, then it's rational in the sense that it prepares you for the kind of action that would make sense given the overall character of your concerns. The particular goal, for example, of escaping something or of attacking someone who is a threat or something like that, right? But it also explains the role that emotions play in Your own rationality. Because if I didn't have an appropriate emotional response to many situations in life, I wouldn't have any ready way of knowing what to do. At any moment in time, there is a million things I could do. And what emotions do is they mimic, I think I use this formulation in the book, they mimic the informational encapsulation of perception. This is one way in which emotions are similar to perception. So, a lot of theorists, I disagree with this now. I've come, I mean, I, in the book, it, I sound like I've been cited as believing this sort of perceptual theory of emotion, but I've now come completely over to a sort of attitudinal view of emotions. I think emotions are just attitudes, and value in the world is just the projection of your attitude. The world is completely devoid of any objective, real value. It's just chaos. And what makes life meaningful is that we are interested in this, that, and the other. And that's what creates goal. And that's why our emotions help us to respond in ways that are relevant to those goals. And so emotions contribute crucially to the rationality of life. Insofar as you can think of life as having any kind of general goal, which I think is not much, but I think the general goal is something like satisfaction, happiness, you know, those sorts of things. And emotions help us to deal with every particular situation in which your response needs to be relevant to that situation and
0: appropriate. So that means we can sort of evaluate our emotional responses, I mean, not just in the individual instance, but in the rule that we're following, right? The emotional response function that we have. Exactly. And we can see if it's in alignment with our goals, right? So if for instance, we could get angry too easily, or we could get angry not easily enough, depending on what course of action is in greater service to our goals, but doesn't that require some degree of normativity, right? Where we are endorsing some goals over others,
1: right? Yes, but the normativity is essentially, if you like, it's a kind of existentialist (laughs) note there. The normativity comes entirely from our choices. You can evaluate the relationship between a situation and a proposed response as being a rational or irrational one. On these terms of saying whether or not it's going to fulfill the goals that the situation appears to call for. But which you choose to adopt is not, as it were, given by the world itself. I've recently come to think that there is that the core of the correct view here is captured by that famous puzzle of Lewis Carroll's about Achilles and the tortoise. Now, of course, you know the classic puzzle of Achilles and the tortoise. The Achilles can move as fast as he like, but the Zeno's paradox is, yes, but he's got to get halfway, and then he's got to get halfway, and then there's an infinite number of finite stretches that he has to cross in order to get to the other end or to catch the tortoise. And so he'll never catch the tortoise. Well, the Lewis Carroll version is Achilles comes to the tortoise and says, I've got this great argument, doesn't matter what it's for Q. Why? Because P implies Q and P is true. So you see Q. And the tortoise says Well I can I agree that P implies Q, and I agree that P is true, but Why should I agree that Q is true? And Achilles makes this great mistake. He says, well, don't you see if P implies Q and P, then Q. And Toto says, ah, is that what you need? Okay, well, if that's needed, let's write it down. And of course, you see, that's where he makes the mistake. Because once you write this down, he can say, oh, yeah, well, I see that's true. And I see the others are true, but why should I accept Q? And so the only thing you could do then is to make an even longer premise that say, if the first premise and the second premise and the third premise, then Q, and then you're off forever. Now, the point, I think, the deep point of this is that, contrary to what you might think, the decision to believe something is always over and above, it's always something separate from the correctness of its premises and the validity of the argument. Because, and this is actually an argument that is made by somebody at NYU called Sharon Street, who first used it in a very famous argument debunking morality On the basis of evolutionary theory the argument being basically that look we got our moral ideas from evolution but why would you think that evolution would as it were promote the right morality there's no reason to think that and that's perfectly true and then she extended it to the epistemic case which is more tricky And with the epistemic case, I think it just shows how profound this is, that ultimately, yes, you can see that P implies Q and P is true. And you could see also that the sentence, if P, then Q, and P, therefore, then Q, is also true. But when you draw the conclusion, that's something you're doing. That's not about truth. It's about what you're doing. And I think that when you evaluate something, when you decide that something is a reason for such and such, right, that's separate from simply seeing that if I cook this, it'll be edible. Okay, if I cook this, it'll be edible. Yeah, I accept that. But so what? Well, you want something edible, don't you? Yes, that's true. But there's at some point which I say, okay, yeah, I see that's a reason for doing it. And that's always a separate step. This is my most recent and radical idea. <laughs> so when people are
0: looking for reasons that they seek out morality as a guide, right? Loosely construed. So if we go back to the emotion example, right? Suppose, you know, someone cuts me off in traffic, right? You know, I can either go out and shoot them or I can take a deep breath. Sure, in Florida. And move, and move on, right? Okay. So if my goals are status-oriented, then I'm more likely to go and shoot the person. If my goals are more mental tranquility, then let them slide. But morality is going to play some role in that. So if I truly believe in turn the other cheek as a normative principle, then you know, I'm going to go in one way. And if I believe in retribution and that eye for an eye and someone cuts you off, deserves to be cut off, I'm going to behave in a very different way. So if we were to just yeah. say that those ways of thinking are basically nonsense, then how do we decide which of these objectives to prioritize?
1: I didn't say that these ways of thinking were nonsense. I think what you just said was a statement of certain perfectly correct psychological facts. They're facts about motivation. But those facts about motivation are not sufficient to tell me what to do. Even something that motivates me isn't necessarily something that I then accept as a reason to do it. I may be motivated to do things which, on due consideration, I actually think Not a good reason. I think you might have this moment of road rage and at the very same time or a second later realize that that this is an idiotic kind of reason for attacking someone or let alone shooting them. So I guess at this point, this is the kind of argument that I'm interested in making against morality, which is that it doesn't actually give you any additional reasons for what to do. It's this argument that I call it the double counting argument. And it seems to me that many people have responded to my ideas about a morality by saying, but look, what if somebody just doesn't seem to care about the fact that he's hurting someone? Well, my response is if he doesn't care about the fact that he's hurting someone, you really think that saying to them, oh, but it's immoral to hurt people, is going to make him think, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, then, of course, then I won't do it. That's completely ridiculous, right? Nobody is going to act on the basis of morality if they don't care about the things that are designated as immoral in the first place because they're bad. and indeed. Lots of people do things because they think, insofar as people are moved by the thought that this is the thing I morally should do, they're just as likely to kill their daughters for having been raped as they are to refrain from killing someone or hurting someone because it's immoral. In both cases, they think, oh, that's the right thing to do. So never mind any other reason. That's the right thing to do. That's not a good reason, that's not a reason at all. So, you know, that's why you can't really escape this idea that every time you endorse a reason, this is something that actually no objective moral truth, no objective deontological command exists to dictate this. It was different if you believed in religion, if you believe in God, makes perfectly good sense to say, well, God commands it. And I've decided, of course, you already have to have made that decision, which is if like an existential decision, right? Because many people react to the very idea of getting commands from God as a good reason not to obey them. Who wants to be just the tool of a divine, weird, otherworldly being? Horrible idea. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like... Wishing to be a slave. But still, if you decide to be a slave, then God's command or whoever's your master's command is indeed a reason that you've determined ahead of time. You are going to take as your reason to do this. But unless you're motivated and have decided you're going to endorse this motivation, that's the existentialist moment then. You know, it's not as if there's something out there that's making you do it. That's, there's a difference between a cause and a reason. I think you're making, in
0: part, an empirical claim that moral philosophy is sort of a shadow religion, but it's one that is less compelling at the end of the day, that the people are less likely to be persuaded or convinced by, say, a moral philosophy than they would be by a religion, even if it, it attempts to be as kind of totalizing as a religion, once you re- remove yeah. the desire to be. But isn't why wouldn't the desire to be moral be as compelling as the desire to obey God's will, let's say?
1: Well, it could be. But the problem with the desire to be moral is that that's like deciding that from now on, you're only going to believe the truth, right? right. Unfortunately, or like the pursuit of happiness, right? I mean, you are constitutionally required to spend your time pursuing happiness. As an American, luckily, I'm not, since I'm not an American, but pursuing happiness is completely absurd because it is literally impossible to pursue happiness. If your goal is to pursue happiness, there is nothing that goal requires you to do. Almost anything could be something that actually turns out to be conducive to happiness. And many of the things that people think are of that kind are actually notoriously incapable of providing you with happiness, buying more things, having a bigger house, the things that people spend a lot of time and effort trying to do on the pretext that they're pursuing happiness. They're always pursuing something other than happiness, which they are usually wrongly persuaded will somehow produce happiness. It doesn't make any sense. And so, similarly, if you say, I want to pursue the truth, well, there's nothing specific that involves your doing. It's a general goal that makes sense. It just means that it's a way of describing the fact that when you want to know something you're going to look at the evidence and you're going to attend to consistency, etc. Then you can describe what you're doing as trying to figure out what's true. But if you simply set the goal, I'm going to believe what's true, desire what's good, and pursue happiness, that gives you no guidance whatsoever. It's completely trivial. And I think morality is the same thing. What do you think moral philosophers are doing? I
0: mean, are they trying to provide some instruction toolkit for actually living according to a utilitarian ideal? I mean, Peter Singer has, even on his website, you can go in and punch in your income. It tells you how much money you should be giving away, right? I mean, are they just trying to get you to accept the end goal, right? Whether it be deontological or utilitarian, and then provide you with a set of instructions? Are they misguided well, or do you think that they, I mean, cause people do seem
1: to pay attention to them. I know, but look, you've just said two completely different things. One, which I think is complete legitimate is what people like Peter Singer do is to say, if you want to contribute to the relief of unhappiness in other people, then. Here are some reasonable ways in which you could do it without, on the one hand, giving up absolutely everything you have and you yourself living in the street and becoming a beggar, which is sort of a certain kind of traditional Buddhist or Catholic way of deciding that you're going to be good. But the other thing is to, it concerns the goal, right? The two things I said you mentioned, which were totally different, was essentially, are you persuading them of the goal, or are you advising them about the means? And I think that it's persuading people about the goal that is much more tricky, because the way in which different moral philosophers approach this posits incredibly abstract and totally implausible and incompatible goals. Notably, for example, the three main moral foundationalisms. Utilitarianism, look for the greatest possible happiness of the greatest possible number. Kantianism, which tells you that just by virtue of being an agent, you have proved that you are a being that is rational in the specific sense that you will universalize your every reason. And therefore, you will do only what you think that anyone ever anywhere should always be doing. Or the third and the least implausible, because I think the first two are completely absurd, because they're completely impossible, to derive anything sensible from any of them other than maybe, I mean, you could exclude a few things, like uh, giving everybody guns. That's right. Just, I mean, if you wanted to be moral, just delete the Second Amendment. You'd be a lot better off from all moral points of view, including the third, which I think, as I say, is the least implausible, which is try to see what makes it possible for people living in a society to maintain a kind of homeostatic level of cooperation mutual understanding and tolerance and efficiency now i think that's the least implausible the social essentially the sort of social contract not in any literal sense, but that's the sort of the tradition that it looks back on. I think it's at least implausible, but it's also fundamentally flawed because if you want a society to be stable, it could well be that the only person currently, for example, who gets it right is the president of China. It could well be that an absolutely autocratic and completely ruthless system that forces absolutely everybody to follow an incredibly large number of rules that rivals anything that the Judaic law might prescribe, including you never cross the street except on a green light, including never litter, etc. And we've got cameras placed everywhere in the street and whenever you're caught throwing away a cigarette butt or crossing the street, you get demerit points, and therefore you will not be allowed to travel and buy a ticket to visit your family for New Year's, etc., right? Well, that could well be the answer how you had the most stable, harmonious society. But is that really how you want to live? Is that enough? Well, I don't think that these kinds of discussions do any good except insofar as they serve to debunk these foundationalist ideals because once I think once you're aware of how of how bad this can turn out to be consistent in your defense of a certain system, then I think that you you realize that well. No, that doesn't allow for the reality chance. It doesn't allow for the fact that the world is fundamentally, in the technical sense, chaotic, which means that however much you know, you will never be able to make accurate predictions about the consequences of what you do that go beyond a week any more than about the weather, right? I mean, the weather is a relatively simple but chaotic system, which means that you can make predictions, then they're usually fairly reliable for about two days or three days or maybe a week. But then you want to make predictions about the whole world, about the happiness of the greatest number. I mean, it's completely crazy.
0: But how realistic is it, I mean, to think that people can be persuaded to be amoral? I mean, that seems to be an even more difficult exercise than its opposite, right? Because it seems that all humans or at least all humans who reflect on it, they all want to at least think that they are pursuing a moral project, or at least I think we talked a bit about virtue ethics. I mean, I think people would like to think that they're pursuing some virtue in in their behavior, in their life plan. How would you convince people that this maybe is a project that they should abandon?
1: Well, I don't think I want to convince people to be amoral. I think what I want to do, if there's anything I want to convince people of, is that they shouldn't be so sure of themselves, and that moral fervor is not, in general, something that will actually achieve any of the reasonable goals that a moralist might want to achieve. You can ask yourself, and that's why I say that the kinds of things that some moral philosophers are engaged in doing make a lot of sense. The way I'd like to put it is, look, it's actually all politics. I think politics is fine, so long as politics actually doesn't try to simply be a more rigid and enforceable form of morality as it used to be. I mean, I think that one of the great signs of progress in the 20th century, which many people are trying to undo in the 21st, all around us, consisted in realizing that enforcing morality in domains that have to do with the, if you like, the purity, the hierarchical, the loyalty aspects of morality, I'm referring here to the pite kind of division of the domains of morality, which divides the world into those that emphasize the avoidance of harm and the avoidance of injustice, on the one hand, and those who are most interested in enforcing certain forms of purity, especially on women, and loyalty in hierarchies. So, you have uh, crimes like les majesté or blasphemy and and things like that, as I think that progress of the last 100 years has consisted in removing those things from the political spheres. But it's totally legitimate to ask, okay, how politically should we try to make things better for the majority of people? So if you think of something like the most explosive issue in America today, abortion, Right, I think that the discussion is completely conducted in the wrong terms because what you should look at is what happens when you make abortion illegal. Not whether you should make it illegal, but just look at the fact that in jurisdictions where abortion is illegal and in the the kind of mentality that leads to wanting to make abortion illegal, more people die. More people are miserable. More people have awful lives. I mean, I'm sure you, you know that one of the hypotheses that has tried to explain why crime fell so spectacularly since the 80s is that abortion was legalized. And so, unwanted children are just more likely to be criminals. And so, if you don't allow unwanted children to be alive, then you shouldn't make it mandatory for them to be alive. You should Take care to have as much and as easy access to contraception, as much sex education in early school as possible. We should do all the very things that anti abortionists are also against, right? So, to point out the incoherence of such policies and to try and make that incoherence drive policy politically. I think that's great. And I think that moral philosophers can and have written to analyze and to make clear how all of these issues relate. If we could just get the politicians to pay attention, then that would be very useful. But I don't think that the program of first trying to decide what is the fundamental rule of morality that everything should derive from whether it's any one of those three of utilitarianism or, you know, rational Kantianism or some sort of social contract, I don't think that is going to do much good. But I don't want to persuade people to be amoral. I want people to just pay attention to the better reasons that they might have for doing specific things.
0: So people should be more comfortable with the idea of, of convention, right? I mean, Many of the rules that we decide to organize our lives around should not be suffused with so much moral meaning, but rather exist in order to create an environment that allows for the pursuit of different goals, that it's not as absolute as we all want it to be. I mean, certainly the abortion debate you mentioned is, I don't think anybody on either side of the dispute would say, hey, let's pick a rule that is a convention that is balancing different interests or different beliefs or different preferences I, d- I don't think that anybody would even if that's ultimately what we're doing i don't think anybody would want to look at it that way and you're saying that people should start looking at it more that way
1: well i'm not sure that nobody thinks that way i mean it seems to me that the easy way to think about abortion from that point of view would be to say let's try and minimize for example, teenage pregnancy, and there's obvious ways of doing that. I mean, it's, if you look at countries where there is sex education and where there is a very low level of teenage pregnancies, there are all countries that allow abortion and encourage sex education and all the very, very same things that the right in America fights hard against. What I'm arguing is that many policies can be criticized on the ground that they are completely self-defeating on their own terms. And that's the application of amorality doesn't mean that you can't apply reason and good empirical evidence and arguments derived from them to argue for one way of proceeding rather than another. It seems to me that the solutions to many problems is well known by the people who study them. I mean, there's lots and lots of evidence that the mere fact of extreme inequality is bad even for the people at the top, not just for the people at the bottom, but it's certainly very bad for most people. But there is no political will for trying to diminish inequality in America. And in countries where the inequality is lower, you see much less of the kinds of problems that everybody worries about. The thing about gun rights is very similar. If you think about, you know, be just, is it really more important for everybody to be allowed to carry any kind of gun on, in their pockets than for people to be safe? How many lives do you really want to save with all this uh, zeal for unborn babies. How about the born ones get shot at the rate of one an hour? Children everywhere in America, were like no other country in the world, except possibly places in the midst of civil war.
0: So you're not American, but you seem like you exhibit sort of a very American pragmatic view of morality, right? It's, yeah. You seem to be very much in the that. tradition of pragmatism. Right.
1: I absolutely agree. I think philosophically, as well as, as it were, politically, I would certainly describe myself as a pragmatist. I mean, what else is there, really? Then look at the facts, look at what you want, and see how you can best get things that are desirable by attending to the fact. I mean, if that's pragmatism, how could anybody not be a pragmatist? So let me just end by asking you you titled this book why think, right? And
0: at the end of the day, your philosophy is really built around goal achievement in a way and understanding goals and understanding how to achieve goals and understanding how to formulate goals. How does thinking in the way you've described
1: it help, right? Why not think less rather than think more? Ah, well, there are two reasons. For one thing, thinking is fun. That's why you do it. That's why I do it. It's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, but it's a pretty big reason for people like you and me, right? Because actually thinking about things is the most satisfying thing that you can do. It's also relatively cheap among available pleasures in life, other than sex, which is a good second for cheapness and satisfaction. But look, the other reason is that because we talk, back to that passage of Hobbes's, Because we talk, we have already made a world that is so complicated, so elaborate, that we have created and keep creating at every moment problems of a nature that couldn't possibly be even defined for a society of non-language using animals. I mean, to be sure, many of our problems like tribalism and xenophobia, etc., these are problems that exist among chimps. We have created versions of them that are so complicated that we couldn't possibly address them without thinking. So, at that point, it becomes essential to think as well and as clearly as we can and not, as it were, condemn ourselves to constantly acting in ways that are counterproductive, given the nature of our own goal. Thank you so much. I think you've given us lots to think about, which is the whole reason for doing this. this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this conversation very much indeed. It's very nice to meet you. So keep your eye open for the next book, which will be titled... Why It's Okay to Be Immoral. Amoral. Not okay to be immoral. It's
0: okay to be amoral. And also, of course, why think and this nice little short book on love, which we didn't really talk about, and the rationality of emotion. Thanks again, Ronnie. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.